you need a Bible, just slip up your hand. We'll get you a Bible. Open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 24. <clears throat> Matthew chapter 24. We're going to read verses 1 through 8. Then Jesus went out and departed from the temple, and his disciples came up to show him the buildings of the temple. And Jesus said to them, Do you not see all these things? Assuredly, I say to you, not one stone shall be left here upon another that shall not be thrown down. Now as he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately, saying, Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And Jesus answered and said, said to them, Take heed that no one deceives you. For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and will deceive many. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not troubled, for all these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise up against nation, and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and pestilences and earthquakes in various places. All these are the beginning of sorrows. Lord, as we dig into this scripture this morning, we just pray that you would use it, Lord, to wake us up, to shake us up, Lord. Help us to realize that time is much shorter than we may believe. Instill a sense of urgency in us, Lord, to move people closer to knowing you. Go before us here now this morning, and we ask it in your precious name. Amen. Please be seated. So today is one of my least favorite days of the year because we lost an hour of sleep. But it was also the day, eight years ago, when I first started here. The first, very first message I ever delivered was on this day in February of 2012. Well, it was February then. And so, I remember it was this day because when I came here to give the message, I was informed that they start church an hour later because of the time change. And one of the first executive decisions I had to make as a senior pastor was say, that will never happen again. Church starts at 10 o'clock. No matter whether the times change or not, church starts at 10. So that didn't make me very popular, but here I am eight years later. So today we're going to start the long-awaited, all through Job, I was pressured when are we going to start Revelation? When are we going to start it? Well, we're still not in Revelation. We're in Matthew 24. So you've got to wait just a little bit longer. Patience, by the way, is a virtue, they say, right? Don't pray for patience. So this series that we're in today is called, Are We Living in the Last Days? And we have to ask ourselves a question. Are we the final generation? Are we? And if we believe that we are, why do we believe that we are the final generation? We're going to look at this from many different perspectives. We're going to look at it from the prophecies, <clears throat> excuse me, in Daniel, the prophecies in Revelation. By the way, we're going to get into the book of Revelation and actually open it up and study it from, from beginning to end. Ezekiel, Isaiah, and Zechariah, just to name a few. <laughs> And then today, 
And for the next couple of weeks, we're going to look at the prophecy that Jesus gave in Matthew 24 and recorded also in Luke 13 and Luke, I'm sorry, Mark 13 and Luke 21. Because I believe that before we can any, ever start a serious study on the end of days, we have to begin with the signs that Jesus gave us that will signify that we are in fact living in a time prior to his coming. Now when we get in the book of Revelation, and we will eventually get in the book of Revelation, we're going to see that the first three chapters deal with the church on this earth. And that from chapter 4 on deal with the church, well the church is no longer here, we're, we've been raptured, so it deals with the tribulation period and what goes on on this earth after the church is gone. So when we get into Matthew 24, we're going to look at the signs and the things that are going to be going on while we are in heaven with Jesus. From Matthew, or rather from Revelation chapter 4 to 19 is the time of, rev of tribulation. And that's what the world will be going through while we're enjoying the marriage supper of the Lamb. We don't want to be here for that. Believe me, we don't want to be here for that. We should thank God that we won't be here for that. Because Jesus says that that time will be so horrendous that if the days were not shortened, even no flesh would survive. So let's dig into Matthew 24 and see why we do believe that time is growing short. And Jesus went out and departed from the temple, and his disciples came up to show him the buildings of the temple. And Jesus said to them, Do you not see all these things? Assuredly, I say to you, not one stone shall be left here upon another that shall not be thrown down. So they're walking away from the temple. They're actually heading out to the Mount of Olives. And for those of you who were just in Jerusalem, you know that that's pretty close in proximity. The temple for them was the center of their life. Everything revolved around that temple. However, in Jesus' day and long before Jesus came to this earth, the temple had become a den of thieves. The Pharisees had turned it into an income-making proposition. And, and it had become a den of thieves rather than a house of prayer and a house of worship. So at the end of Matthew 23, Jesus says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her, how often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. See, the house is your house is left to you desolate. For I say to you, you shall not see me no more till you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So Jesus predicts that the house, the temple, will be left desolate. Now that would have to be a little hard for the disciples to believe. Because as they're walking away from this temple, it is immense. It is an immense structure. It was under construction even then. What was being built or what was being added onto the original structure was what would become known as Herod's temple. And so this temple was a sight to behold. The first temple, Solomon's temple, had been destroyed. It had been destroyed in one of three raids where the Babylonians came against Jerusalem. So in 586, Babylon led by King Nebuchadnezzar, comes against Jerusalem for a third time and destroys the city, burns, this, burns the temple, leaves the city in ruins. And the temple remained that way 
for about 48, 50 years until a man by the name of Zerubbabel comes along. Now, you can find Zerubbabel in the book of Ezra. The Persian king Cyrus had given Zerubbabel all the implements for the temple, all the implements that they used in temple sacrifice, implements, by the way, that Belshazzar, one of the kings of Babylon, uh, Babylon had looted from the temple. And so King Cyrus allows Zerubbabel to return to Jerusalem from Babylon around the year 538 B.C. to begin to rebuild the temple. So we could argue, and people have, people argue about anything, but they argue that this, this Zerubbabel's temple was the second temple. Zerubbabel built the, the altar so sacrifice could begin again, and he rebuilt again the, temp the foundation of the temple, but what he did was built it smaller than the foundation of Solomon's temple, much to the displeasure of the Jewish people of his time. So they weren't happy with the fact that this temple was smaller than it was under Solomon's rule. Next, under the reign of Artaxerxes, king of Persia, Ezra returns. Now, Ezra comes back to Jerusalem about 80 years after Zerubbabel. He leaves the people in a spiritual restoration. After Ezra comes Nehemiah, Nehemiah did what? Anybody remember? Build the walls and the streets and the city gates. He builds that all back up. So King Herod doesn't build a new temple, does he? He simply remodels and makes it bigger, expands the temple that was already standing there. And I have to add that God did not instruct Herod to rebuild the temple. Herod did this on his own. Herod did this to gain favor with the people who weren't very happy that he was the Roman-appointed king of the Jews. But this temple, this temple project, as every project that Herod undertook, was a massive undertaking. He enlarged the Temple Mount, enlarged it so big that he had to have retaining walls to help hold this stuff in place. One of those retaining walls still exists to this day. It's called the Western Wall. So this project took years, years, like a hundred years to finish. It was said that at the time Jesus entered the temple, it had already been under construction for 46 years. Herod hoped to see it finished, but he died in 4 B.C. It took another, <clears throat> excuse me, took another 60 years to complete the temple. The, te the temple was finally completed. in 63 A.D., and anybody remember what happened just seven years later? They finally finished this temple, this massive structure, and seven years later, in 70 A.D., it's going to be destroyed again. And Jesus predicts the destruction, and he predicts the plight of the Jews in the city as he rode into Jerusalem just days before his crucifixion. He said this, If you, speaking of Jerusalem, even you had known on this day, what would bring you peace, meaning himself. But now it's hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. And they will dash you to the ground and your children within your walls. And they will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. Some 37 years after Jesus makes this prediction, Around the year 66 A.D., 
A Jewish revolt breaks out in and around the area of Jerusalem. It began when a Roman procreator named Gessius Flores took 17 talents of gold from the temple treasury. That doesn't sound like a very much money, does it? 17 talents of gold, how much could that be? In today's economy, that would be worth $1,400,116. So it was a lot of money then, and it's a lot of money now. So the people complained that Gessius went in and took those 17 talents. So what he did was he took his troops, marched them into the city, and he's going to plunder now everything in the city and kill the people. The Jews at this point had become pretty well armed and, and pretty well organized, and they drive out the Roman soldiers. So in Syria is another Roman general named Cestus Gallus, and he is the procreator over Syria. So he sends a much larger force of Roman soldiers into Jerusalem to put down the rebellion and control the rebels. They drive them out and rout them along the way. So now they've driven out two Roman forces. So the emperor, Nero at the time, calls out his big guns. He brings in General Vespasian. And Vespasian shows up with four legions of Roman soldiers, including soldiers that they pick up along the way from various cities and other places. And so he marches into Galilee with 60,000 men under his command. Now Vespasian begins his campaign against Jerusalem up around the city, up around the Sea of Galilee, rather. And then he goes up from there toward Jerusalem. And along the way, he's putting down the rebellion all throughout Jerusalem. So now it's around the year 68 AD. The rebellion has been put down in the surrounding area. The only thing left to conquer is the fortified city of Jerusalem. It is around this time that the Emperor Nero dies. And we're not going to go through the whole history of that, but Vespasian is eventually called back to Rome. He becomes the emperor, but he leaves his son Titus in charge. And he tells Titus that you are to take that city by whatever means necessary. So they build a wall around the city, which the Romans were famous for doing, by the way. We saw that in Masada. They're stuck up on a mountain. And Rome is, is, is so concerned that they're going to sneak down off that mountain and get away that they actually built another wall around the mountain so they couldn't get out. They build a wall around the city so no one could get in and no one could get out, just as Jesus said they would. Food became scarce under this siege. It lasted for months. Reports say that cannibalism, the people had resorted to cannibalism because food was so scarce. And then in the summer of 70 A.D., Titus, after months of heavy fighting, because the Jews didn't just lay down and say, okay, it's yours, after months of heavy fighting, he enters the city and burns it to the ground. Titus had given orders to his men that they should demolish the entire city and the temple, and ex beside a few towers and, and some of the um, forts of the Roman garrison, everything within that city was destroyed. The Jewish historian Josephus wrote, it was thoroughly laid even with the ground by those that dug it up to the foundation, and there was left nothing to make those that came thither believe Jerusalem had ever been inhabited. So the Romans burned the temple, melting the gold that was within the temple. 
And then they demolished the temple block by block to get to the gold. No stone was left upon another that were not thrown down, just as Jesus said. And to this day, when you go to the city of Jerusalem, when you go to the temple, when you go to that side of the temple, you can see those stones, those blocks laying there. Now, it's not all the blocks, because the Muslims who've come in after them have taken those blocks that were conveniently laying on the ground now and built their own structures with them. But Jesus said no stone would be left upon another. And so why is it so important to prove that? Because this is a prophecy. Jesus gave us a prophecy that came true in 70 AD. And if Jesus gave us this prophecy and it came true with such accuracy, how much more so the rest of the prophecies contained in, in this discourse? Think about this. God could have accomplished this very same thing with an earthquake, couldn't he have? Well, Jesus said it was not one stone would be left upon another. He didn't say how it would happen. God could have done this with an earthquake. But instead, he used the arrogance of self-willed man, along with the greed of man, to bring an end to the temple, to bring destruction. And in the last days, he's going to use the same attitude of man to bring an end to mankind. In the end... It will be the desire of man to be ruled, not by God, but by themselves, by man. And their desire to please themselves and enjoy life and, and enjoy prosperity is going to lead them to accept a ruler over them called the Antichrist. And that decision will ultimately bring destruction upon willful, sinful man. All throughout history, God has led man, left him up to his own devices to bring destruction upon himself. And in the end... That's exactly what we're going to do. Our self-willed love of self is going to bring an end to mankind. Look at Matthew 24, verse 3. Now as he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, Tell us when will these things be and what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? Now, I know we're kind of moving slow, but I really want to pick this apart so we have a really good, strong foundation for this prophecy series. And as you've probably figured out by now, I love history. And if you don't, I apologize ahead of time. But history and prophecy go hand in hand. It's through history that we see the fulfillment of prophecy, isn't it? If we didn't have the history of what happened in 70 A.D., we would not know that Jesus' prophecy was fulfilled. So the disciples asked Jesus three questions. Some scholars say there's only two. I see three here, but it really doesn't matter in the grand scheme of things, does it, whether it's two or three. These three questions kind of give us an outline for this dialogue that he's having with his disciples on the Mount of Olives, a dialogue which, by the way, is called the Olivet Discourse. So the three questions are this. When will these things be? That question relates specifically to when will the temple be destroyed. Second, when will be the sign of your coming? You have to understand something. This, this question is a little trickier because they're asking this from their perspective. They still have no idea that 
he's speaking of a future event. They're looking at this from their perspective. They're asking him when he's coming, when he's going to rule and reign as Messiah over Jerusalem. They're looking at this as happening in their lifetime. That Greek word coming is parousi, and it means arrival. It's kind of like when the governor arrives to govern a province or when the king arrives to rule over his subjects. So what they're asking Jesus is, when are you coming in your authority and in your power to rule and reign as Messiah, as king? And so they ask him, just prior to his ascension, because up until then it still hadn't happened, The disciples believed Jesus was going to establish his throne then, so they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, it is not for you to know the times or seasons which the Father has put in his own authority. Acts chapter 1, verses 6 through 7. The disciples still did not believe, or they didn't understand, that Jesus was leaving. He was ascending into heaven. He was going to be seated at the throne at the right side of his father. They still didn't understand that. They didn't understand that Jesus was speaking of a future event, a future time when he would come and rule and reign. And so the disciples also believed that the destruction of the temple and the end of the age were the exact same event. But Jesus is speaking about two separate events. The temple would be destroyed in the disciples' lifetime, and the coming of the Messiah to rule and reign would happen in a future event. And then they ask him, what will be the sign of the end of the age? And this one they they hit a little closer to home because Jesus had been speaking to them about the end of the age. Jesus said to them in Matthew 13, So it will be at the end of the age, the angels will come forth, separate, separate the wicked from among the just, and cast them into the furnace of fire. There will be wailing and gnashing of teeth. So Jesus also tells his disciples that, Lo, I am with you always, even till when? Even till the end of the age. So the disciples understood this question. They understood what they were asking. They understood they were asking Jesus, when will be the end of the age of man? When will be the end of time? When is that going to happen? And isn't that the question all mankind's been asking since Jesus left? When's he coming back? So Jesus lays out the signs for them and for us. Signs that are going to precede his coming to rule and reign to usher in the end of the age. But before he does that, he warns us. He gives us a warning. He gave them a warning. Look at verse 4. And Jesus answered and said to them, Take heed that no one deceives you. For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and will deceive many. A little further down in Matthew's gospel, and we'll get there a couple years from now, maybe. Matthew 24, verses 23 to 25, Jesus said, If anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or there, do not believe it. For false Christ and false prophets will rise and show great signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, if possible. It's not possible, but if it were possible, even the elect, by the way, who is Israel, the elect are Israel. Just let me say this one thing. The tribulation is for the salvation of the Jewish nation. 
Got that? The tribulation is for the salvation of the Jewish nation. How many in this room today are saved? Uh, all right, good. All the hands. That's not. It's for the salvation of the Jewish nation. We're gone. We're gone. We're not going to experience the tribulation. This is for the Jewish nation. But Jesus says, don't be deceived, because there are going to be many who come claiming to be the Messiah. And listen, that word in the Greek, claiming to be the Christ, is Christos. It means anointed one. And there's a long list of both Jewish and Gentile people who have claimed to be the Messiah. For instance, Sun Young Moon, the founder of the Unitarian Church, claimed to be the Messiah. Jose Luis de Jesus, I love his name, founder of the Growing in Grace Ministries, claims to be the Messiah. David Koresh, remember that guy? Claimed to be the Messiah. And so these are just a fraction of people who have publicly proclaimed to be the Messiah. But Jesus isn't just referring to those who claim to be the anointed one. He's referring to anyone who denies him as Lord. Anyone who preaches a gospel contrary to the true gospel. Anyone who preaches that Jesus isn't the only way to salvation is a false gospel. It's a false messiah. It's a false way of salvation. Peter wrote, but there will also be false prophets among the people, even as there will be false teachers among you, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the Lord who bought them, and bring on themselves swift destruction. Paul warned the church, For I know this, that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you and not spare the flock. Also from among yourselves, men will rise up speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after themselves. And why is any of that having an effect on the church? Paul wrote to Timothy, For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, will heap up for themselves teachers, and they will turn, from their, turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to fables. Are we seeing that today? Are we seeing a falling away from the word? Are we seeing the apostasy? Absolutely we are. Listen, and I want you to listen very, very carefully. If you don't remember anything else about this message this morning, I want you to remember this part of it. Why do we not see any counterfeit $3 bills? Because there's not an original $3 bill. We see plenty of counterfeit $20 bills, don't we? And they, even though they flood the market as legal tender, once they're found out, they're absolutely worthless. We have so many counterfeit Gospels because there's only one original Gospel. And the same could be said for the counterfeit Gospels. They're flooding the market today, if you will. They're flooding the church. And when they're discovered... Or when, the, what they're, when people believe in them, they are absolutely worthless. They have no power to save anyone. You know, when a U.S. Treasury agent or a bank teller learns how to spot a counterfeit bill, do you know what they study? They don't study counterfeit bills. They study the real bill. They touch it. They know the feel of it. They know the smell of it. They know the look of it. And so when they start slipping counterfeits in that pile... As they're going through, they can tell, they can spot a counterfeit because they know the real one so well. And listen, the same is true as the gospel, of the gospel for believers. If we study the word of God and we know it so well that when a false gospel, when a counterfeit gospel comes our way, we should be able to spot it. We should be able to know it immediately. 
When we hear a false gospel, we know it's a false gospel because we know the voice of our Lord Jesus Christ. There's going to be a check in your spirit that something just isn't right. Now, just doing a quick internet search, it revealed all, well, most of, and I'm sure this could be this could be a message in and of itself. All the false gospels out, of there, out here. So, I'm just going to give you a few of them. First, a gospel called the gospel of permissible grace. Many preachers today preach that God loves you unconditionally. And if you're saved, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, I can tell you emphatically that he does. God loves you just the way you are, right? But there's another part to that, isn't there? He loves you too much to leave you that way. But that's not what they're teaching in some pulpits today. They're teaching that God loves you so much that you can stay just the way you are because God loves you just the way you are. There's no teaching about repentance. There's no teaching about sin. There's no teaching about any of that. And so that has led to church splits. It has led to gay pastors teaching about homosexuality from the pulpit. It has led to same-sex marriages. It's led to all kinds of aberrations. Only because they're teaching a false gospel. They also teach that repentance isn't necessary after you've been saved, which goes right in the face of 1 John 1 9. Why would that even be in the Bible if we weren't to confess our sins before God? Anyone in here still a sinner? Oh, there's a couple of you that are perfect. Another false gospel out there is called the social justice gospel. Now, those who practice this gospel, they take Christian ethics and apply them to poverty, the slums, the poor nutrition, the education, alcoholism, crime, war, you name it. They all have a social agenda. Now, listen, fighting for and fighting against some of these things, helping the poor and needy, isn't necessarily bad, is it? None of that's bad. But the problem with this gospel is, is that all of those issues are emphasized, and only those issues. There's no talk about sin. There's no talk about salvation. There's no talk about repentance. There's no talk about heaven or hell or a future kingdom of God. All of that, if mentioned at all, is downplayed, and what's presented, what's looked at, what's taken care of are only the social issues. Listen, you could feed the homeless all day long, but if you're not talking to them about Jesus Christ, if they're not getting the gospel message... Being fed spiritually is far more important than being fed physically. And then we have the gospel of new age spirituality. This is my favorite. Which I believe is part of the, of the end time religion. You know that the Antichrist will introduce one world religion, one world government. One commentator wrote that the new age movement is a counterfeit philosophy that appeals to the feelings of individuals leading them to think that they are God and can enhance their lives through their own person. This isn't a new movement. This movement's been around since the 70s. It has its roots in Eastern mysticism. Now, there's many books on this subject, and there's just as many gurus, if you will, that are out there promoting this false gospel. But I want to highlight one, just one of their authors, by the name of Marianne Williamson, which, by the way, is a mentor for Oprah. Any of you ladies that still love Oprah, any of you guys, 
If any guys are watching Oprah, see me after service, would you please? She writes a course on miracles. This course indoctrinates people into, a new, into this new age mystical mindset. In fact, this course on miracles that she wrote has become the new age Bible of sorts. So I'm just going to tell you what some of these lessons proclaim. Lesson number four, there is no sin. Lesson number five, do not make the pathetic error of clinging to the old rugged cross. Lesson number six, the name of Jesus as such is but a symbol. It is a symbol that is safely used as a replacement for many other names of all gods to which you pray. Lesson number seven, a slain Christ has no meaning. Lesson number eight, the atonement is the final lesson he, man, need learn. For it teaches him that never having sinned, he has no need of salvation. So these are just some of the abhorrent belief systems or false gospels that are out there. And I mentioned Oprah's name for a reason. How many viewers does Oprah have on a daily basis? Some like 10 million viewers I read. She has an enormous impact on people. And so there's sadly many people today who follow her and follow people like her. And they're not following Jesus Christ. And I share all this with you because I want you to know what's out there. I want you to know what you're going up against when you share the true gospel of Jesus Christ. People are searching. They're searching. But what many people are searching for is what fits them. What makes them feel good about themselves. They're searching for the truth that best fits their lifestyle. See, they don't want to change their lifestyle to fit the absolute truth of the gospel. They want the truth to fit their lifestyle. They're not interested in the absolute truth. They're not interested in it because truth for many today has become relative. It's whatever you think it is, that, that's the truth. If you think it's truth, then it must be truth. Listen, this isn't anything new. The apostles dealt with this. They dealt with Gnosticism. They dealt with mysticism. They dealt with Zionism, just as we deal with nationalism in our country. You name it, they dealt with it. And King Solomon said, there's nothing new under the sun. But it seems like to me, and maybe it would to Paul if he was here today, that these false gospels have increased over the years. There's just more of them. Why? Because many Christians, even Christians, wouldn't know the real gospel if it rose up and bit them on the leg. Just saying. I'm not saying you guys don't know it. Christians don't know the truth because they're not in the word. So with every wind of doctrine that comes along, Christians are tossed to and fro. There is only one true gospel. Paul said, I preach Christ and him crucified because, listen, that's the only message that has the power to save. That's the only one. Jesus warns us not to be deceived. Why? Because we could be deceived. Those who don't know the voice of the shepherd will fall for any gospel out there. So be warned. These false gospels don't lead to life everlasting. They lead to eternal death and separation. And Jesus goes on to tell his disciples, that the end is not yet, verses 6 through 8. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not troubled, 
For all these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise up against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famine and pestilence and earthquakes in various places. All these are the beginning of sorrows. So here's the list. Wars and rumors of wars. The world has always been at war, hasn't it? It seems that way. It seems like we've had very little peace, if any. Listen to a report from the UN. Well, the number of nuclear weapons has dropped from more than 60,000 during the Cold War to around 14,000 today. Now, that sounds like a good thing, doesn't it? Less nuclear weapons. But they're more powerful today. So if they're more powerful, we don't need as many of them, do we? At the same time, relations between nuclear armed states are fraying, and divisions over peace and the scale of disarmament are growing. Never before in the history of mankind have we been at a place where we can destroy each other many times over with the nuclear weapons that exist even today. The world is just sitting on a powder keg. Just, it's just going to take one rogue nation to start the dominoes falling. Jesus said nation will rise up against nation. In the Greek, that word is ethnos. Ethnos. Ethnicity will rise up against ethnicity. People group against people group. Humans against humans. Do we see that today? Do we see persecution of people today? Do we see Christians and other people groups being persecuted today? Listen, we're hearing of atrocities happening in Africa, Nigeria, from Boko Haram. Reports of killings in Cameroon. Cameroon. There's ongoing war in Syria. An ongoing war which, by the way, has left more than 40,000 dead. Six million have been displaced. Turkey, fighting against the Kurds. That's been ongoing forever. To this date, over 40,000 people have been killed there. I'm sorry, 400,000 in Syria, 40,000 in Turkey. China, Iran, Iraq, India, the list goes on and on and on about people groups, humans killing, attacking, imprisoning other groups of humans simply because they do not believe what the other group believes. Here's another report from the UN. Globally, the absolute number of war deaths has been declining since 1946, and yet conflict and violence are currently on the rise, with many conflicts today waged between non-state actors such as political militias, criminal, and international terrorist groups. Another report says, in 2016, more countries experienced violent conflict than in any other point in almost 30 years. At the same time, conflicts are becoming more fragmented. For example, the number of armed groups involved in the Syrian civil war has mushroomed from eight to several thousand since the outbreak of the conflict. Furthermore, the, re the regionalization of conflict, which interlinks, po interlinks political, socioeconomic, and military issues across the borders has seen many conflicts become longer, more protracted, and less responsive to traditional forms of resolution. What Jesus is talking about here isn't something that we haven't seen over the centuries. We've seen wars. We've seen famines. We've seen pestilences. We've seen all of this. What he's saying is that as the time approaches for his return, 
these things will happen with greater frequency and greater intensity. We see them increasing right before our very eyes. So there's no doubt that just the rise of terrorism and religious persecution alone has caused an increase in nation rising up against nation. In our own country, we've seen a rise in anti-Semitism and racism. We're seeing humans, even in this country, rise up against other humans, are we not? Listen to an article posted in the Washington Post on January 9th of 2020. The recent anti-Semitic assaults in New York and nearby suburbs have attracted less attention than they deserve and require. But we know that Jews are the most frequent targets of hate crimes in New York City and that anti-Semitic crimes there have jumped 21% in the last year. Here's an article from the New York Times on racism in our country. Boy, many people would tell you there is no racism in our country, haven't they? So there's a questionnaire entitled, or titled rather, How Much Racism Do I Face Every Day? Amy Harmon writes that the experiences of 101 black teenagers in Washington, D.C., who were surveyed about how much racism they experienced on a daily basis. Collectively, the 101 black teens participating in the study reported more than 5,600 experiences of racial discrimination over two weeks. That boils down to an average of more than five instances per day for each teenager. That's more than 70 over two weeks. Those findings may not be surprising to those who face routine discrimination, but they reflect a higher frequency of racism than has previously been reported. Humans are rising up against other humans at greater frequency. People groups against people groups, nations against nations. It's on the rise, just as Jesus said it would be. Jesus said kingdoms would rise up against kingdoms. Now Jesus is talking about countries here, superpowers. Kingdom would rise up against each other. We saw that in World War I, World War II, the Korean War, the Vietnam War. And those are just some of the wars, just a fraction of the wars that the U.S. has been, a major, um, been majorly involved in. And each one of those wars, it seems, have been bloodier than the last. But there's a world war yet to happen, a world war on the horizon, the third world war, a war outlined in Ezekiel 38 and 39. Turn to Ezekiel, if you would, 38. By the way, just to throw it in there, Ezekiel 39, if any of you have ever had hazmat training, a gentleman I worked with um, and on the railroad who just came back from hazmat training read Ezekiel 39 with me and told me that it is exactly what he had been trained to do in a nuclear war. Over 4,000 years ago, that was written. And it, it could be used to train our guys today in hazmat training. Ezekiel 38. If you got to 39, you went too far. Now the word of the Lord came to me saying, Son of man, set your face against Gog in the land of Magog, the prince of Rosh, Meshach, and Tubal, and prophesy against him, and say, Thus the Lord God says the Lord God, Behold, I am against you, O Gog, the prince of Rosh, Meshach, and Tubal. 
I will turn you around and put hooks in your jaws and lead you out with all your army, horses and horsemen, all splendidly clothed, a great company with bucklers and shields, all of them handling swords. Persia, Ethiopia, Libya are with them, all of them with the shield and helmet. Gomer and its troops, the house of Togermah and the from the far north and all its troops, many people are with you. Prepare yourself and be the, on the ready, you and all your, your companies that are gathered about you and the guard for them, and be, be a guard for them. After many days you will be visited in the latter years and you will come into the land of those brought back from the sword, talking about Israel, and gathered from many people on the mountains of Israel which had long been desolate, they were brought out of the nations, and now all of them dwell safely. You will ascend, coming like a storm, covering the land like a cloud, you and all your troops, many peoples with you. This is just one of those passages of scriptures that I believe show us that we are closer today than ever before for our Lord's return. Look at the players involved here. Gog and Magog, many believe, is referring to Russia. God says there are other people from the far place, from the far north, right? If you look at a map, the people far north of Israel is Russia. Russia is the extreme far north of Israel. The other players here are Persia, modern-day Iran, Ethiopia, Libya. Gomer and Togermar represent modern-day Turkey. So here's a coalition of forces led by Russia, including Ethiopia, Iran, Libya, and Turkey, and all of them come against Israel. That sounds hard to believe, doesn't it? Not so hard to believe if you're Israel. They've seen this before. Uh, here's the interesting part, though, and here's why we believe that we're closer now than ever before. Up until just a couple of years ago, Russia, Iran, and Turkey were not, were not allies. As a matter of fact, Turkey was an ally of Israel up until very recently. French news station reported this. The leaders of Russia, Iran, and Turkey announced Monday that they agreed to form a committee tasked with rewriting Syria's constitution as part of a political solution to the country's civil war now in its ninth year. Did you notice how that, that, that article started off? Russia, Iran, and Turkey. Another news report stated that Russian and Turkish warships held joint drills in the Black Sea from the 6th to the 8th of March. New, the news was quoted from a Russian Navy representative. In Tehran, on December 29th, all the planned stages of the joint naval drills between Iran, Russia, and China have been successfully completed. Iranian Naval Commander Rear Admiral, and I'm not going to even pronounce his name or try it, told the news agency on Sunday, what are you saying? Iran, Russia, Turkey, all mentioned together. Not that long ago, I'm telling you, not that long ago, Turkey and Israel were friendly. But recently, Turkey has disowned Israel. They've turned away from Israel. In fact, the Turkish president had this to say about Israel. Whoever is on the side of Israel, let everyone know that we are against them, as quoted in the Jerusalem Post. So when you put all of this together, Russia, 
Turkey, Iran, I formed a coalition. They're performing military maneuvers together. Turkey has broken ties with Israel. And here's the clincher. Russia and Turkey and many of these other nations mentioned here, has their Islamic population has grown exponentially in the last few years. Who are the worst enemies of Israel today? Islam, Muslims. We have the makings today, right now, this moment, we have the makings of Ezekiel 38 war. So it's not a matter of if, it's just a matter of when. I found this little gem on a website called Politico. Putin is preparing for World War III. Is Trump, question mark, warned the December Newsweek dispatch from a veteran correspondent in Moscow. People are seeing this. People who don't even know the Bible are seeing this happen. So God says to his prophet Ezekiel that he's going to put a hook in the jaw of this northern invader. Recently, well, up until recently, we believe that hook was oil. Until recently, when Israel discovered the mother load of natural gas deposits. As a matter of fact, in a report of Tel in Tel Aviv in 2019, it said... For decades, Israel was an energy-starved country surrounded by hostile, oil-rich neighbors. Now it has a problem. Thanks to modern offshore discoveries over the last decade, it has more natural gas than it can use or readily export. They found the source of natural gas. Listen, up until that discovery, Russia was the main supplier of natural gas in the region. The problem with Russia being your gas supplier is if you do something the Russians don't like, guess what? You're not getting a gas delivery this week. So could Israel, becoming a major supplier of natural gas in the region, cutting Russia out completely, could that be the hook that, it, that God tells Ezekiel? I don't know. Time will tell, but that looks pretty good to me. Scholars are also debating where this fits into the prophetic timeline, Timeline: this, this Third World War. This is going to make you laugh, because it just, it just tells you why scholars are scholars. Some scholars believe that the rapture of the church happens just prior to the Ezekiel 38 war. Some scholars believe that the rapture of the church happens in the middle of the Ezekiel 38 war. And other scholars believe it happens at the end. So it's like, you know, for those of you who have been to a racetrack, it's like win, play, show. You know, we got all our bases covered here. What I find funny about that is that this war only lasts one day. So if the rapture happens, you got one day. God says this about the armies that come against Israel. Surely in that day there shall be such a great earthquake in the land of Israel, so that the flesh of the, the fish of the sea and the birds of the heavens and the beasts of the field, all creeping things that creep on earth, and all men who are on the face of the earth shall shake at my presence. The mountains shall be thrown down, the steep places shall fall, and every wall shall fall to the ground. I will call for a, swore, a sword against Gog throughout all my mountains, says the Lord God. Every man's sword will turn against his brother, and I will bring him to judgment with pestilence and bloodshed. I will rain down on him, on his troops, and on the enemy peoples who are with him, flooding rain, great hailstones, fire, and brimstone. Thus I will magnify myself and sanctify myself, and I will be known in the eyes of many nations. 
then they shall know that I am the Lord. So this isn't going to be a long drawn out siege. It's not going to be a, a, a long battle. This battle is going to be put an end to in one day by God himself. And so here's the point to all of this. If we're seeing the players involved in the Ezekiel 38 war, the Third World War, already in place, how close are we to the return of Jesus Christ for his church? Pestilence, or famines rather. Famines are something that we've had for centuries, right? But as war increases, as more people are displaced from their homes, we're going to see more and more famines that are going to continue to, to rise. Pestilence, disease, sicknesses like the coronavirus is going to increase with intensity and frequency. I want you to listen to an ex excerpt from a report from Brown University published in 2014. The enterovirus, tuberculosis, cholera, measles, various strains of the flu and hepatitis, the number of infectious disease outbreaks and the number of unique illnesses causing them, causing them appear to be increasing around the globe according to a new Brown University analysis of more than 12,000 outbreaks affecting 44 million people worldwide over the last 33 years. Now, obviously, this report does not take into account the new coronavirus or the new strain of the coronavirus or Lassa fever. That's a, a hemorrhagic fever killing people in Nigeria. There's, listen, there's new strains of, of all these viruses that are going to pop up. Remember H1N1? SARS? I mean, the, the common flu, the flu, the regular flu kills over 60,000 people a year. Cancer alone has increased, hasn't it, over the years. I remember when I was younger, we, my father called cancer the big C. It was rare to know someone with cancer. It was rare. Today, I don't believe there's a family in this world that hasn't been touched in one way or another by someone in that family or in that family tree with cancer. The World Health Organization said the number of new cancer cases is on the rise globally. Deaths from cancer worldwide are projected to reach over 13 million in 2030. So between 2008 and 2030, the number of new cancer cases is expected to increase more than 80% in low-income countries, which is double the rate expected in high-income income countries of 40%. Sickness and disease are on the rise, just as Jesus said they would be. Now, that shouldn't scare us. You should not be afraid of the coronavirus. You should not. We know where our future lies, don't we? Our future lies with Jesus. Our future lies in heaven. It should embolden us. And I believe God's even using this for what, what was meant for evil can be used for good because we see our brothers and sisters in China. They're, they're very noticeable. They wear these yellow Tavex suits with masks, but they're handing out Bibles. They're witnessing to people in the streets. This is China where just a few months ago they were blowing up churches and imprisoning pastors. But now these Christians are boldly sharing their faith in the streets of China, not worried about what happens to them. They want to see people come to Christ before they leave this world. And what's going on around us should embolden us to share our faith, to move people closer to Jesus. 
Jesus said there'd be earthquakes in various places. Now, there's no doubt that we've been hearing more and more and more about earthquakes, haven't we? Although the GSA has come out and said that earthquakes have actually decreased over the years. Any of you that have, and I believe they've done that simply to, a lot, to, a, to just relieve the fears of the people. If anyone has watched The Coming Convergence, how many of you have seen that movie yet? You've got to watch The Coming Convergence. The Coming Convergence, the people who produced this documentary, took the data from the GSA and actually used their own data to show that earthquakes are, in fact, on the rise globally. And listen, all we have to do is read the newspapers and look at social media, and we see that for ourselves, don't we? In earthquakes have been increasing with intensity and frequency, just as Jesus said they would. So in closing, Jesus gives us a couple points to understanding these signs. He says, all these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. Listen, the coronavirus is not going to wipe out mankind. So you can store up all the toilet paper you want. It's just not going to wipe it out. The end is not yet. These things are going to happen. They're going to continue to happen. They're going to continue to happen with greater frequency and greater intensity, but they're not going to reach the crescendo until the tribulation. And so the important thing for us to take away from this is that if what we're seeing now is what's going to be seen in the tribulation times, only worse, how much closer are we to the return of Jesus Christ for his church? And then Jesus said, these are the beginning of sorrows. That word sorrows means birth pangs. When a woman is close to delivering her baby, contractions begin. And that's when she begins to tell her husband that this is all your fault. Those contractions increase with intensity and frequency the closer the arrival of that baby gets. Jesus said the time for his return, the time for him to come and rule and reign as a king, as it draws nearer and nearer, these things that he's mentioning, these wars, these, this disease, the sickness, the pestilence, the earthquakes, all of that is going to grow with intensity and frequency until the day of his arrival. So he's saying to us, wake up, look up. Because if we're seeing the labor contractions beginning, how much closer are we to the arrival of our king to rule and reign? Once those labor contractions begin, they don't stop, do they, ladies? That means, I believe, that the return of Jesus Christ for his bride, the church, is drawing ever closer. So, what application can we draw from all of this? I'm going to give you a couple of points. First, Jesus tells us that no stone would be left upon another, that the stones of the temple would be thrown down, right? And so Jesus is telling them, his disciples, that the temple, the center of their life, would be turned upside down. And sometimes the Lord allows that in our lives, doesn't he? He allows our lives to be turned upside down so that we get our focus off of the things in our lives and back on him. And so, listen, we all have some things in our lives that, that need to be turned upside down because we've allowed them to manipulate 
our lives, to take time away from the time that we spend with Jesus. And so by allowing these things in our lives to be toppled down and our lives to be turned upside down, it causes us to get our focus back on him where it needs to be. And when we're focused on him, that affects everything else in our lives. Our relationships are helped when Jesus is the center of our lives and not whatever it is that we've replaced him with. The decisions we make in our lives will be God-honoring decisions. Our work ethic will change because when we're focused on Jesus and not ourselves, we do everything as unto God. So it could be a good thing, actually, if our lives are turned upside down, especially if that helps get our focus back on Jesus. Second, Jesus warned that we could be deceived, and he warned us not to be deceived, meaning there's a real danger that we could be deceived. Many, many of you sitting in this room this morning have been taught doctrines and bad theology that just isn't in the Bible. Many of you believed it because you've heard it from a pulpit. Your grandparents believed it. Your parents believed it. Listen, I challenge every one of you in this room to be Bereans, to check everything that comes from this pulpit, to not believe a word of it until you've checked it yourself. Paul wrote this about the saints in Thessalonica. He said, they were more fair-minded than those in Thessalonica. In, in fact, that they, in that they received the word with all readiness and searched the scriptures daily to find out whether these things were so. So as Paul taught them, they went back and searched the scriptures to make sure what Paul was teaching them was the truth. Listen, Jesus warned us that in these last days there would be false teachers, there would be false gospels, there would be false doctrines. And I don't want you to take my word for that. Look it up. You can find it. Search it out. But just because you've been taught something from a pulpit, just because your family believes it, your grandparents believe it, all your friends believe it, does not make it biblical. Do you understand that? Just because everyone else in your family believes something, it doesn't make it biblical. Just because this is what you've been taught since you were a little child doesn't make it biblical. Take what you've been taught and look it up in the Bible. Look up the context of what you're looking at and see if what you've been taught matches what the Bible says. The Bible is the only truth. It is our guide. It is our standard. Not what you've heard from a pulpit, not what your grandparents taught you, not what your parents taught you, unless it's in this book. Does it mean anything? A well-read, well-studied, well-trained Christian will not be misled. They will not be deceived. And in third, Jesus said, the end is not yet. It's easy to get carried away with prophecy, isn't it? I love Bible prophecy. It Prophecy doesn't save you, but it is one of the things that led me to want to know more about the Bible. Jesus said these things are going to happen. As a day, as a day draws closer to his return, they're going to increase with intensity and frequency, meaning that diseases like the coronavirus, like the H1N1, like SARS, these are just a shadow of what's to come, just a shadow. The earthquakes we see today are just a shadow of the massive earthquakes that are going to hit this world during the tribulation period. And so the reason we speak about them now is because if we're beginning to see the beginning of them now, then we must be close to the rapture of the church. But listen, 
prophecy, no matter how well presented, no matter how interesting, no matter how exciting, no matter how thought-provoking, does not save anyone. Anyone here get saved from the message of a prophecy? No. Only Jesus and him crucified has the power to save. Paul wrote, for the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved it is the power of God. So for many, the subject of the end of the world has been overemphasized, right? I mean, you see these guys walking around with sandwich boards and ringing a bell. The end is near, the end is near, the end is coming. Or Christians selling their homes and quitting their jobs because the end of the world is next month. Listen, can you blame non-believers for thinking we're just a little bit crazy? The message, the only message that saves was, is, and until Jesus returns will be the message of the cross. That's the only message. Prophecy and the events that we see happening around us are just a tool. They're just a tool for us, an open door for us to tell others about the love of Jesus Christ, to tell others about the cross of Christ. With all these things happening around us, God, it's just God's way of reminding the world that he is God, that he is God. And we so desperately need his son, a savior. Earthquakes, natural disasters, various strains of viruses are all going to happen. But I believe they're happening to wake up and shake up this world that has forgotten that there is a God. Forgotten that the only way to heaven is through his son, Jesus Christ. God wants all the people of the earth to hear that message. And he has gifted each one of us in this room. He has put that message in these earthen vessels to go out into this world and share with them the good news of Jesus Christ. In a world that's afraid, a world that's buying up hand sanitizer and storing toilet paper because they think the coronavirus is the end of the world. They're going to be quarantined for six months in your house. God wants to use you, he wants to use me, he wants to use all of us to deliver the message to the people that the end is not near, but you don't have to experience anything that's being talked about here because you can have a life with Jesus Christ in heaven for all eternity. And I can, you can tell someone how that can happen. What's happening right now, what we're seeing right now, is this world passing away. But there's a way to be part of the new heaven, the new earth, to become a new creation, and that's through Jesus Christ. And you and I have that message. And so we're going to start a new initiative here today. Many of you got the flyer in your bulletin. It says, move them closer to Jesus, right? So how does that work? People are naturally coy about sharing their faith. Maybe they don't know how. Maybe they don't know the word well enough, which is something that I would encourage everyone to correct in your lives if that's the case. But maybe you don't know how to seal the deal, if you will. You know, let's say somebody says, hey, how do I know Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior? Maybe you don't know the sinner's prayer. Maybe you don't know what to say. Maybe you're just a little nervous or you're going to mess it up. You were never called to save anyone, were you? Jesus said, just be a witness. Be a witness. Go make disciples. Be a witness. Show others what I've taught you. Show them how to carry that out in their lives. Show them how to live that in their lives. But how do you start a conversation with somebody? That's the hardest part, isn't it? So this initiative, the move them closer to Jesus, is pretty simple. The other day at work, a guy who I've known for 
quite a few years now, is telling me that he's done so many things that I have no idea. And I said, no one is out of the reach of Jesus Christ. And he quite promptly walked out of my office, but I moved him closer to Jesus. That's all it takes. He wasn't thinking about Jesus when he came into my office, but he was thinking about Jesus when he left. How was how it? You're, you're on, a, on the line somewhere in a, in a store, and you got a cashier. How many of you experienced a cashier who looks like she, him or her just about ready to give up and walk out, right? They've had dealt with rude customers all day long. People are just bombarding them. And you just say to them, hey, no matter how bad a day you're having, Jesus loves you. How hard is that to say? It's not hard to say at all. But you've walked out of there moving them closer to Jesus. They weren't thinking about Jesus before you came up in their line, but they're thinking about him now. You're out at a restaurant, and you say to your server, I pray before I eat. How can I pray for you? You're telling them that I have faith. I have faith that prayer works. I have faith in prayer. They weren't thinking about that before you came into their restaurant, but they're thinking about it now. You know, I went to, to dinner with a, a friend of mine a few months ago, and, and I, I try to re always remember to do that. And I did it with this one particular server, and she actually practically sat down with us and just told us about what was going on in her life. That door would have never been open had I not said those simple words. It's as simple as that, guys. Jesus loves you. Jesus cares about you. It's that simple. And I guarantee you, when you do that, he's going to make you feel better. You're going to come away from that all jazzed up, wanting to do it even more. And the more you do it, the more bold you're going to become, the easier, more confidence you're going to have. And I guarantee you, before long, you're going to be able to experience one of the greatest things that could ever happen in your life, and that's the honor and privilege of leading someone to Jesus Christ. So I'm interested to see if you guys do it, and I'm interested to hear the results of it. Maybe someone just walks away and says, oh, you're a maniac. It doesn't matter. You share Jesus with them. You move them a little closer to Jesus. So I'm interested to hear what you have to I'm, I, I want you all to go out and try it at least this week. And then next week when we get together after service, we'll share. Share with your experience. Um, as far as having the um, keys to the message, we're going to have that today. You guys go out, you know, like normal. You didn't get questions. I know Missy's probably fuming over that. But at the end of the message were points of application, and that's what we're going to discuss in the keys of the message today. So, Lord, we thank you for prophecy. Thank you, Lord, and even though this was a little long-winded message, and hopefully it, it got the point across, Lord, that we are so much closer today than ever before for your return and I pray that it just instills a sense of urgency among the body here at Calvary Chapel High Valley to go out and share your message and move people just a little bit closer to you Lord Jesus and we ask this in your name amen God bless you guys <laughs>